Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Have you um, yet discovered how there are so many things in life that are just a mystery, seemingly impossible to explain? For example, anytime I have to look for something in the refrigerator, it disappears. It's amazing, and then when my wife looks for it, it magically just reappears. <laughs> Anyone else have that, or is it just me? I, I'm, I'm convinced that, uh, that she buys stuff that's like camouflaged, <laughs> that like a chameleon knows when to turn on this camouflage and it disappears. Um, there's another mystery we also have in our home, and that is that uh, if there's an electronic device that my wife is trying to use, somehow it malfunctions when she's using it. <laughs> But if I'm present and she tries to show me how it malfunctioned, it works perfectly. No one else has it, do you? Another one of life's mysteries. We had, um, as we were raising our five boys, we had a toilet in our house that mysteriously always needed flushing. No one ever used it, but anytime I wanted to use it, it needed flushing. Strange, no one ever admitted to having forgotten to flush. But yet, every time I needed to use a restroom, someone had left it unflushed. Amazing. Just mysteries. I'm sure there were some explanations for that, but there are some mysteries in life that are a little bit more serious, I'm sure, that perhaps you've also had to wrestle with. You know, sometimes there are tragedies we have to go through. And we wonder, how, God, do you let your people, the ones you love, the ones that you want to protect, how is it that you let us go through some difficult tragedies or some hostilities from those who are opposed to us as Christians. Um, sometimes we're not protected from sicknesses, and sometimes good people die. And you wonder, perhaps if you've been going through some difficult circumstances, why God's allowing that? And it's a mystery that you cannot explain. But perhaps God is going to use your testimony as you go through those difficult circumstances for his glory. You might be perplexed even today at the events that are going on in the world, the fears of the coronavirus. But God may be in the midst of whatever that confusion may be, whatever that tragedy may be, waiting to turn his people's testimonies into a triumph for his glory. Maybe you're here just wondering, why am I in Copenhagen at all? <laughs> whatever it is that you're going through, why does God have me here at this time? And um, perhaps God could very well be wanting to use you here in Copenhagen, wherever you happen to be, also for his glory. And today, we're going to look at how the very first Christian martyr, the first Christian ever to die for his faith, was used by God to fulfill his divine plan of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. It is a mystery that God would allow a man like Stephen, as we're about to see, such a godly man, to die prematurely. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6 as we uh, take a look at the life of Stephen, what he went through, what he had to endure, um, how he defended himself, although we won't uh, read all the way through his defense. I will uh, summarize for you today. But if you have your Bibles... You can turn with me to Acts chapter 6, or if you have your devices with you, the ones that hopefully don't malfunction, 
um, to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 8. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? So if you'll remember, Stephen last week was one of those seven who were chosen to serve the tables during the daily distribution of food. If you hear last week, you remember that message. And you'll remember as well that the qualifications for serving in that particular task in verse 3 of chapter 6 were that they had to choose men of good repute, men who were full of the spirit and of wisdom. So when this Stephen was selected by the church at the time, Luke mentions that Stephen was, quote, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit in verse 5 of chapter 6. And now we see Stephen described as someone who's full of grace and power. He was known. What was he known for? For doing great wonders and signs among the people. This was a stellar example of a Christian man. And yet opposition to Stephen arose from one of the synagogues, arguing with him, but he was so wise that they couldn't defeat his wisdom or the Holy Spirit who was enabling him. And instead, they had to secretly instigate false witnesses and thereby had him brought before the Sanhedrin to face charges, charges against speaking against the temple and the law. We have heard him say, they accused him, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, this hostility from these religious leaders, if you've been following along in the series, is all too familiar, isn't it? Raising up false witnesses to bring godly men before the council and falsely accuse them. And in all likelihood, the group that had gathered contained individuals who had tried Jesus himself. The same council was gathered. These people had also tried Peter and John, and now also Stephen. And even the accusation itself seems all too familiar. If you remember when Jesus was accused, he was accused of saying that he could destroy the temple of God and raise it up again in three days. What they didn't realize was he was speaking of his own body that they would destroy and he would raise up again in three days. And now they still seem to cling to that accusation to get a conviction. But this Stephen, as you saw in this text here, is a remarkable example of a Christ-like mature man. Now, ladies, let me ask you this. How many of you wouldn't want a husband described as Stephen is described here? A man who is submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. 
right? Wouldn't that be the kind of husband you want? A living example of faith and of faithfulness. Where can I find a man like that, you might ask, right? A man with such a good reputation that he's ideal for a task that involves serving. That's the kind of man that Stephen was. And men, I ask you, isn't this the kind of man that we want to be? The maturity that we aspire to, known by others that we have the power of God working in our lives. A living example of that faith and faithfulness, wise enough to know what's right and true that when our wives want to argue with us, they can't. <laughs> they can't fight the arguments that we present because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? We can provide such a convincing uh, case that they are unable to challenge us. And now, moms and dads, I ask you, the sons that you're trying to raise, wouldn't you want them to be known by the community like a man like Stephen was? We named one of our sons Stephen. We're very proud of him too. So the question is, why would God let one of his best examples of a godly Christian have to go through hostility and opposition, and if you know the story of Stephen, you know it led to his death for his faith. Why would God let something like that happen? And it tells us that being a genuine model of an obedient and faithful godly Christian does not mean that God will always shield us from evil, from harmful or malicious people or events. Although the Bible will assure us that in several places, in fact, that God blesses those who are obedient. God blesses the faithful. He blesses us with good things and protection. Not all the blessings that we experience will be enjoyed here on this temporary earth. We have to remember that. And the Bible has plenty of examples of an evil person prospering and a good person suffering. Read Psalm 10 one time. Why would the psalmist of Psalm 10 have to complain to the Lord, why, O oh Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then he'd have to protest or she would have to protest that the evildoer is prospering. The evildoer is afflicting the poor, boasting that he shall not be moved. And the evildoer is even renouncing God. If it were not true that sometimes evil people prosper, then the psalmist would never have to complain to the Lord that way. And we know as well that the Lord permitted Satan to afflict Job with suffering and hardship. Job lost his entire family. Why was Job chosen to go through that suffering? Because the Lord knew that Job would yet praise God. In fact, it was God that turned Satan's attention to Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And of course, we can't forget that Jesus himself, the perfect son of God, obedient in every way, and yet the Bible says that it was God's plan that he be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows, that he be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It's easy for me to stand up here and sell the prosperity gospel to you because everyone wants their current life to be easy, to be comfortable, to be prosperous, free from any sickness, hostility, and hardship. That would be an easy sell. But the true gospel is a bit of a harder sell. The true gospel requires that we have to trust God for our blessings to come, even when we don't experience them here and now. The true gospel 
is a harder sell because it requires that we trust God that it's on the other side of death that perhaps, or that, that, our, um, that it's perhaps on the other side of death that we will experience the blessings that God has promised us. But today, you and I live in a very instant, on-demand, pleasure-seeking, entertained culture. We don't have a lot of things that teach us to be patient, things to teach us to be faithful or obedient and long-suffering. But the Bible reminds us that God esteems those who are truly servants of Christ, who are willing to go through any trial or suffering for His sake, and also ready to follow His example of looking to a future glory. Just like Jesus, we can see the joy that's set before us even though we might have a cross before us. Like Jesus, we're ready to endure any hostility against us and not grow weary. Like the psalmist in Psalm 118, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If the worst he can do is take my life and usher me then into eternity with God, then that's not bad at all. But if God doesn't always protect me, and He doesn't always bless the obedience with good things, then why should I strive to be faithful then? That's a fair question. I'm glad you asked it. <laughs> See, when we don't listen to the counsel of the Word of God, then we're liable to make some rash or some foolish decisions. We'll act selfishly. When we don't listen to the counsel of the Word of God, we'll pursue the things that don't bring lasting pleasure, and we'll end up doing things that are wrong, morally. And so when we disobey God, we will experience things like guilt, regret, sorrow, pain from those decisions, and we know that sin always destroys, because lies will lead to mistrust between people. Unfaithfulness and pride leads to broken relationships. Envy and jealousy leads to discontentment and ungratefulness. Lust leads to sexual misconduct and other crimes. And the love of money leads to all kinds of evil behavior. So living outside of the will of God brings division, it brings animosity, it brings hatred, it brings death. But when you live in obedience to the will of God, then your life, then you will live your life knowing right from wrong, so that you can choose right over wrong and thereby be wise beyond your years. When you live in obedience to the will of God, you will pursue what truly matters in life, and you will experience the things in life that bring lasting joy. And you will not have any regret over the decisions you make, but you can take courage in the fact that you did what was right, and one day you will be vindicated. And although you may experience grief or sorrow as part of what God has sovereignly allowed in your life and mine, we can have the confidence that God is working all things together for good because we love God and we know we're living according to the calling that He's placed on our lives. And when some evil or when some hostility befalls us like it did for Stephen, we don't have to be anxious or fearful because God is always with us. We know He will never leave us nor forsake us, and His peace that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So friends, that's the assurance that we have when we live in the will of God, knowing that our blessings, if they don't come in this life, they'll come on the other side of death. So God doesn't always protect, <clears throat> excuse me, God doesn't always protect His people from the evil 
or the hostility that they might ex ex uh, experience here on earth. But still, we see God will use the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the church to spread the gospel to the places that he wanted witnesses. When Stephen begins his defense, it's in verse 2, and again, I said, as I said, I won't read it for you, but I'll just let me, let me just quickly summarize. Remember, he was accused of speaking against two of their most sacred and highly esteemed religious values, the temple and the law. That was his accusation. And if those accusations were true, if he were trying to lead the people away from the temple of God and worshiping the Lord um, and to disobey the law, then yes, he would, uh, he would be, um, it would be justifiable that he got the death penalty for it. Because that was not allowed to... to uh, uh, lead the Jews away from their covenant relationship with the Lord. But Stephen here gives a historical account which essentially is affirming to them his complete acceptance of the law of Moses being God's revelation and of the temple being the place to worship the Lord. However, very important details in his account that you'll read in chapter 7. Go home and read it someday soon. But he quotes Moses saying, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He quotes Isaiah who says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? So again, regarding the law of Moses and the temple, he makes sure they understand he's all for what the, what the, the Old Testament has revealed about it. But he adds these very important details as well. The fact that they rejected that the earthly temple was never meant to be a permanent dwelling place for the Lord and the fact that they rejected the one that God sent, that Moses had already predicted he would send. So his summary basically emphasizes how the Israelites had a history of rejecting what God had provided for them when it concerned the land, when it concerned the law, and when it concerned the temple. He recounts basically that God sovereignly orchestrated all these things for our forefathers. And yet in verse 35, he says to them that this same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? Or he, he um, uh, emphasizes that their forefathers had rejected this same Moses. He recounts that God sovereignly used Moses to lead the fathers out of Egypt, the great exodus. But he says in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And then in verse 48, he recounts how God had sovereignly given instructions to our forefathers about building the tabernacle of the testimony, and yet reveals also that God doesn't live in houses built by men because heaven is his uh, uh, throne. And at the end of this summary, we'll uh, observe in verse uh, 51 to 53, notice how he ends his uh, sermon, which is important that, that Luke records it all because it's very clear what, he's trying to, what Stephen is trying to defend here. But here's how he concludes in verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who anointed or who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. What a statement to say before his accusers that if anything, he's the one that's been observing everything that God has been revealing 
and they are the ones that are rejecting the revelation of God. He calls them stiff-necked people and uncircumcised of heart and ears, a word that God uses in judging the Israelites back when they had uh, worshipped the golden calf and in the prophecies of Jeremiah. They were guilty of resisting God, being unresponsive to his revelation. They, his, the people there, might as well have been Gentiles who never had the privilege of knowing God's will. And notice what happens then when he's accusing them. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Notice then that Jesus himself had stood before the Sanhedrin only a few days prior, also being judged for blasphemy. He had been adjured by the high priest, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered, yes, it is as you say, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That was when the priest determined that Jesus' trial was over and he was guilty of blasphemy. This is the only time in the New Testament when Jesus is said to be standing at God's right hand. And a number of possibilities or possible explanations are offered. Perhaps he was standing to welcome Stephen home. Perhaps Jesus was standing because he was in that moment making intercession for Stephen. Perhaps Jesus was standing as a witness and an advocate, or perhaps standing as part of his duty as priest. We can speculate, but here's what's common to all of those explanations, that Jesus is obviously watching what's going on. Jesus is obviously involved, and from his exalted position, Jesus is concerned about his servant. And as, Jesus saw, as, as Stephen saw Jesus standing there, that's when they immediately stoned him for blasphemy, which was the method of capital punishment for blasphemy outlined in Leviticus 24. But their act of violence was rash. They did not stand first to vote on whether or not he was guilty. And in fact, we know that Roman provincial law requires the authorization of a Roman governor in capital offenses. That's why Jesus had to be crucified by the Romans, that the Jews couldn't kill him themselves. And there, as Jesus was dying, his words are also reminiscent of the Lord, whom he served until his death. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, is what Jesus said on the cross. And here, Peter, uh, Stephen has very similar words as he's dying. And this killing of Stephen seems so evil, doesn't it? Seems so senseless, like such a waste of a godly and righteous human being. But notice what happened. As we read in verses 1 through 3, 
that a great persecution happened. And then, because of that persecution, the church scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Wasn't it Jesus himself that told his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, right? So God's plan was happening because of this tragic event that Stephen was martyred, killed for his faith in Jesus Christ and his proclamation. Verse 2 says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Who would have guessed that for the church to do what Jesus had asked them to do, that it would take the martyrdom of a saint? Who would have guessed that it would take a great persecution? And friends, these are mysteries of God that are very difficult to explain. But God still wants his disciples, disciples of Christ, to be witnesses to the end of the earth. And though you and I may not understand why we're placed where we are placed, that is the task that we are given. We too should preach the word wherever we go. Because God is still sovereignly at work, revealing himself to the world and he's scattering his witnesses there in those places that he wants the gospel to be preached. So friends, that's you and me. Wherever we're scattered, whatever may be the instigator, I certainly hope it doesn't take a martyr of one of us for us to go out finally and be those witnesses that God wants us to be. If you look in the Bible that historically, God has always wanted to gather worshipers from all nations. And what's exciting as I look across this room here is we are from so many different nations that we are the fulfillment of what God has wanted His church to be. Matthew 28, 19 says to go and make disciples of all nations, which is exactly what Psalm 96 was saying, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. If you look at the end of the book of the Bible in Revelation. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And so God is still sovereign at work using followers of Jesus Christ to reveal himself to the world. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. You will be my witnesses. So God could have chosen some other method of bringing his testimony to all nations, but he hasn't. He sovereignly called us to be his witnesses and wants us to then preach the word wherever we are sent. So I want to remind you today as well that there are places in corporations that you have opportunities that no other Christian has to preach the word. You are scattered among positions in institutions of learning that you have access to that no other Christian has to preach the word. And there are places and families that you belong to that no other Christian belongs to. And God has you there to preach the word. And there are countries and prohibitions against proselytizing, and there are limitations on missionary visas, yet you who are here on a work visa, a diplomatic visa, whatever it is, you don't have to go through those hoops of getting a missionary visa. You are a missionary. 
Uh, this week, thankfully, Conrad passed his exam so we can get his missionary visa extended. It's expensive. It's a lot of paperwork. It's necessary to be a missionary here that you have to go through these hoops. But most of you here are not on missionary visas, are you? You don't have to go through those hoops. And God has placed you here, scattered us all like seeds on the face of the earth to spread the word where we're placed. And so the question we have to ask is where we happen to be placed, will there be fruit? And preaching the word, as you've heard us say from this place before, it means telling people about the good news that Jesus Christ is God's Son, who gives eternal life to all who believe in Him. Preaching to a stranger may yield some fruit. Perhaps most of us, though, will be telling the good news to people we already know. Telling the good news to people we know means that we take occasions that are given to us to say that Jesus Christ wants them to believe in Him for eternal life. Taking the good news to people we know means creating occasions to say that Jesus Christ offers them forgiveness of sins. And telling the good news to people that we know means living in such a way that they will even offer occasions to tell us, or for us to tell them, excuse me, the reason for our hope. And telling the good news to people means we start relationships with people that we don't yet know in order that we may be given or we may create or we may take an occasion to say that Jesus Christ is my Savior. So as you hopefully will be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ and preach the word wherever you go, there's three things you need to remember. Number one is you need to remember to pray. Ask God first who it is that he would like to reach with the good news through you. And it might be someone you already know. It could perhaps be someone that you don't yet know or have a personal relationship. It could be someone at work, someone in your building or your neighborhood, someone in your family, maybe someone in your children's group of friends. Yesterday, we had a seminar called Saturate, uh, taught by Christian. Many of us uh, who are here today were there, and it challenged me too. One of the things that Christian said was that the desire to share something good naturally will spring from something that I truly enjoy. And so if the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that my sins are forgiven and that I have eternal life in Jesus Christ is something that I truly enjoy, then that joy that delights me every day will cause me to simply want to share it with others. And so maybe in our daily prayers, maybe in our daily reflection and meditation, we need to reflect on the gospel first so that our joy is renewed, that I've been forgiven of all my sins. After you pray, make sure then the second step is that you build your relationships you create occasions to talk. You get to know each other. You share things about yourself, and you let them share about themselves. Could be over dinner. Could be over coffee. Could be a family taking a vacation with their family. It could be helping them with something that they need help with. And another thing that we got out of the Saturate Seminar was that people know that I'm a pastor, right? So they expect me to talk about the Bible and God and Jesus, right? Well, if they know that you're a Christian then it'll be perfectly normal for you to be talking about Jesus and God and the Bible and what He means to you, right? But they first have to know that you are a Christian that lives by God's Word and is faithful to His church, that loves His people. So always be in prayer for them and have others pray for them and always bear in mind that you will one day share the good news of Jesus Christ with them as you build your relationship with them. And then thirdly, share your testimony. Because when the occasion arises, 
you should be prepared of what you'll say. And you need to think beforehand about the words you'll use in your testimony, words that they'll understand, not, not a lot of this Christianese language. Think about beforehand how you'll share what your life was like before Christ and how you met Him, who was involved, and how your life has changed since then. And you'll also need to think of how to explain the significance of who Jesus is and what His cross means. And again, going back to what we learned yesterday, we actually went through some core elements of a gospel presentation and a couple of different ways to present it, and we practiced sharing the gospel as they did some role-playing with each other, a situation and how you would share your faith in that situation. Now, let me also remind you, because sometimes people don't realize that even in the Bible, preaching the gospel comes in a variety of forms. When Peter preached, it was more like confrontational. He says outright, repent and be baptized. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Paul, as he preached, was more intellectual. He debated with the philosophers on Mars Hill to convince them. And then there was the blind man whose proclamation was more like a testimonial. He said, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And when Jesus instructed the demon-possessed man who'd been healed, he told him to go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Relational. And then the Samaritan woman, remember she begged the people of her city to come and hear Jesus for themselves. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? In more of an invitational style. Or perhaps in Acts chapter 9, there was Dorcas. Yes, that was her name. Tabitha as well. But Dorcas impacted her city by the way that she served doing deeds of kindness. So don't ever think that just because I'm not like the Apostle Paul, or just because I'm not like Stephen and able to proclaim before the Sanhedrin like Stephen did, that I'm a second-class Christian. I'm not called on to witness like they are. You are called on. And if you're like me, who works out of my home, I get the opportunity to preach to people who actually come into my home. I told you about uh, months ago when the Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door, right? The accident that first drew our attention, it wasn't intentional, but uh, they, the two ladies, one of them fell on the, on the driveway, cut her eye open, and uh, I took her to the doctor. She came, they came back, and we had a chance to share uh, the gospel or to talk about the gospel and what it means. And now that my office is in Urstel, guess what? Ding dong! Well, that's not exactly how the bell works. It's more like a buzz, right? But sure enough, the Jehovah's Witnesses came to my office two Wednesdays ago. And I, of course, invited them in. And I began the conversation basically saying, you know what, your, your friends have already been to my house in Hearst home. Um, we had a long discussion. And let me just begin by saying that you're probably not going to convince me uh, to become a Jehovah's Witnesses. And I probably won't convince you to be a Baptist. Uh, but you're welcome so we can talk about... God and faith and Jesus. And then the conversation basically was, was how I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I made it very obvious what the gospel was all about. So some of us who work at home don't even have to go anywhere. They come to our door. <laughs> and would you believe it, last Thursday, the same two ladies once again rang on my doorbell because they had some answers to some of the questions that I'd posed to them last time. Unfortunately, this Thursday, I couldn't see them. But they got my number, and we have an appointment for next Thursday. So you never know what God uses. But I think all of us should be prepared 
to preach the gospel wherever it is that we've been scattered. And God may use some mysterious things to do what He wants to do. He doesn't always shield His people from evil or hostility. That's what we've seen today. But He can use the evil or the hostility to His purposes for good. And God scatters His witnesses to the places that He wants the gospel to be preached. So where has God sovereignly placed you as His witness in His plan to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege we have of knowing Jesus Christ, that someone before was faithful to point us to your word, to reveal to us the truth of Jesus Christ being your son, and to invite us into a relationship with him, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might be saved by grace through faith, and that we might have eternal life because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so, Lord, it is sometimes, for some of us, burdensome to know that we must also share our testimony with others. But I pray, Lord God, that you would reignite the joy of our salvation in each of us so that that joy would simply overflow in us to want to tell others about the Jesus that we met, the Jesus of the Bible, the true Word of God, and we just pray, Lord, that whoever happens to be in our sphere of influence or whoever you bring to our door, that you would lead and guide that conversation in such a way that we could make it clear that Jesus died on the cross for sins and that you would work in their hearts that they too would receive this wonderful good news. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.